0: Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatou Sow. And I'm Ann Friedman. What's up this week? Today's episode was put together by Nerea Otieno, who is one of two writing fellows associated with my newsletter, which is not a CYG product, but um, that's how she and I got to know each other. And when she mentioned that she wanted to convene a panel of women entrepreneurs who are working Outside the strictly money-making space and trying to do things in service to their communities, I was like, "Yes, let's have that conversation." So I'm going to chat with Nerea a little bit, um, and then uh, she is going to talk to two other entrepreneurs. It's like it really is like a kind of telephone, like pass the mic and then pass it again. Here I am with Norea.
1: Thea is the founder of Future People Sounds. It's a nonprofit organization, a global community, and a booking agency, um, all representing female and gender minority DJs globally. Um, and Sybil is a chef, a children's book author, and the co founder of Honeysuckle Projects, which is a lot of things, as you'll learn, but it is a multifaceted endeavor to like engage community through nourishment and lineage of Afrocentric ideologies, specifically in food and Black food ways.
0: And what made you want to talk to these two entrepreneurs together?
1: First of all, I love food and I love music. And so being able to talk <laughs> about that... Self-interest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, it's, I'm a, one of a very select few who has interest in those things. Um, but just to see how they both are growing such projects from the ground up and doing so with like a lot of hustle that isn't shined on because... If you know them, you see it, but if you don't know them, then you it kind just, of just assume it's easy.
0: Yeah, and also it's interesting you use this word hustle and I use the word entrepreneur, which are so often associated with like tech companies mm-hmm. or like the recently declared dead girl boss or <laughs> <laughs> um, not so much with community serving, community feeding, community centric efforts like what both. These women are up to
1: yeah exactly it's funny like there's so many of those you know like kind of magazine profile with the hero shot of the lady CEO with her fingers crossed shot from below and um, talking about how these people are like changing industry but yeah it doesn't you don't get the same attention in community facing and community serving organizations where it takes the same amount of resourcefulness the same amount of ingenuity the same amount of like innovation um, and just time, attention, heart, <laughs> um, sleepless nights, and all of that. And so I really wanted to talk to them about their processes.
0: Yeah. And you also have a personal vested interest in this topic because you're also an entrepreneur in this vein.
1: Yeah, I'm in the process of starting my own 501c3 with my colleague, Ben. It's called Rising Artist Foundation. And we are also looking to like support a very specific group and specific interests and just talk about how we can grow that and just what it's like to start something from the ground up that is very community-facing and the struggles that we're encountering with that.
0: What is your organization all about?
1: Well, we are trying to just offer a new... The the thing is, the U.S. has absolutely no federal system for supporting emerging musicians, especially if they're outside of like classical music. Classical music or that sort of thing has a lot of support, but anyone working within alternative um, music, it's really difficult. There's so many barriers to entry from social barriers, economic barriers, racial barriers, gender barriers, all these things that also the algorithm is like exasperating in a lot of ways. Um, so it's really difficult for, for emerging musicians with talent to enter if they don't have privilege. And so we just want to offer another, another
0: way into the industry. Mm. Um, I love that you were able to have this conversation with them as a peer, um, I think that's one thing that makes it really special. And um, I also love this contribution to expanding and enriching what it means to be an entrepreneur in this country. Let's listen to you and Tia and Sybil.
2: Woo! Um, my name is Tia Corbett, and I am the founder and director of Future Female Sounds. And Sybil?
3: I am Sybil St. Tate. I am the co-founder and the COO of Honeysuckle Projects.
1: Thank you both for being here. I just so you know, like I'm super excited to talk to both of you. And part of the reason why I wanted to put the two of you together is because I feel like there's all these, um, you know, like profiles and magazines and stuff about like this boss chick is changing the game in cosmetics or and there's like a you know like a hero <laughs> shot with her arms crossed and shot from below like talking about these women that are really <laughs> switching up industries and it's I when I when I met both of you I thought like these they're doing the same thing but it's just like not meant to make a bunch of other people money it's just like for the for the greater good and the amount of hustle and skill and everything that you guys have um, so then I thought why don't we shed some light on two people that are doing that and talk about that process and and how they're going and i really wanted to get the two of you also in conversation because i'm sure that when you're starting new stuff it's like sometimes you don't know who to talk to and how to get like you know create that community for yourself um Mm -hmm. so one thing that i also want to do really quickly is since Tia, you're involved with music, and Sybil, you're mostly involved with food. I want to kind of ask you guys a question about each other. Um, so, Sybil, what's the last song that you've played?
3: Oh wow, this is that's a good question. <laughs> um, uh, we've been doing a lot of driving and. Um... <laughs> I have an old car that has like a CD deck Look. and I I mean I had an aux but I just enjoy playing CDs definitely <laughs> um, and so it's like a five disc changer and um, there's like five very good albums in there but the one that I most enjoy when I'm driving in the streets of Philadelphia because it makes me crazed and frenzied is, um, is uh, To Pimp a Butterfly mm. by Kendrick mm. yeah, so um, uh mm. The intro track is kind of what I enjoy to drive through, drive to, um, because it's got that nice little funk, Mm -hmm. uh, very um, Parliament kind of vibe, and uh, I I hope to always be in a state of Parliament (laughs) in my my everyday activities. State
1: of Parliament, (laughs) George, George is so proud. (laughs) Yeah, and Tia, what's the last? What's the last thing you ate then, Tia?
2: Um, I just literally ate a kebab um, about one hour ago because I was rushing from my house to get to the office, realized I hadn't eaten, which is like me on a daily <laughs> basis, realizing I haven't eaten and I'm hungry. And um, there's this amazing kebab around the corner for like four dollars. Um, so I'm good. I'm, I'm fed. I have energy again. Nice. I yeah. appreciate
1: you translating that to dollars for us. <laughs> well, you're very welcome.
2: <laughs> Tia is
1: in Copenhagen. Mm. Okay, when was like an instance that sticks out in your mind that made you really believe you had to pursue your idea? Let's, um, let's start with you, Tia. So this idea of making DJing accessible to women globally um, and just giving them an education with that. When is there an instance that sticks out for you to pursue that?
2: yeah, I think there's um, there's a few instances. Um, I, for me, it was a long process. Like it was kind of like bits of pieces of a puzzle that I knew I had and I had to make it. but I kept finding a new piece. Um, so the puzzle wasn't complete yet. But I think it started for me when I was working for another nonprofit organization where I was coordinating and teaching music workshops for refugees um, for children and teenagers across the Middle East. So uh, we used to work in refugee camps and in all of the classes, the genders would be mixed. So we would have boys and girls um, together, working, learning how to, how to write, how to rap, how to DJ. And I noticed that the girls would always hold back a little bit. Um, And I think that's when I realized that learning in a safer space is really, really important. And this was like 10 years ago. Um, And I think it just, it became really apparent to me that like learning a skill in a room where people look like you and where the instructors or the mentors uh, that are there also look like you, it just creates better conditions for flourishing and for developing talent um, and having role models. uh, It's so important. And then I think the second kind of milestone was when I was working at this music festival called Roskilde Festival, which is like one of Northern Europe's biggest music festivals. And I was hired to kind of observe and create a campaign that highlighted the lack of female artists on stage. And I was walking around the festival and like going to different stages you know seeing all these big performers and I was like where are the female DJs at like there were just literally no DJs that were female um, interestingly enough like two years later I came back to that festival as a DJ um, on one of the main stages for actually one of our common friends Norea Madame Gandhi yeah
1: shout out to Kieran
2: yeah <laughs> Um, And I think being there um, and seeing this absolute lack of representation of female DJs, it realized that, you know, I realized there was a real need to advocate for female DJs, but also to create more spaces and more gigs for them. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And what about
1: for you, Sibyl? Was there a specific moment when, I mean, maybe you also want to talk about everything that Honeysuckle Provisions encapsulates, um, and just if there was a moment where you were just like, "This is something that we this needs yeah. to happen." Yeah, and I for sure, for
3: it. sure. Um, so, um, I guess I could I'd start with yeah talking about honeysuckle and, and provisions specifically. Um, it's provisions is a model where we are taking the grocery store, the supper club, a cafe, a library, a community center, a center, and placing it in one in one structure, um, but still holding true to Afrocentric values and promoting Black food ways, um, and really trying to shift um, the, the culture um, of food, of the food industry. Um, my, my kind of, um, I have a similar experience um, to Tia, whereas it was early on in my career, I would say, that I noticed that we don't have spaces for us. Um, for women chefs, for black women chefs, um, and more specifically, I mean, my family's from Haiti, so for Haitian <laughs> women chefs, um, we we are in an industry that it does not promote us, does not support us. Um, and so it was evident very early on that we needed spaces to feel seen, to feel safe, um, to have the freedom to create and to express our blackness on a plate. Um, and that's what Honeysuckle is. It's It's a chef-driven concept that comes into the community and pours into the community um, and offers sustainable produce, um, items and goods from black farmers, black makers, Mm -hmm. um, black and brown farmers and makers, to be honest, um, in in our kind of Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland area. Um, And COVID made it explicitly clear that there were discrepancies um, within the communities, within marginalized communities of who got food, who got the good food. Um, And so Mm -hmm. it was, so this is an idea that both my husband and I had always kind of kind of mulled on, was just like wanting to have spaces for to celebrate Blackness and food. Um, and once the pandemic hit, we realized we need to make sure that these communities get fresh produce, get good produce, um, and aren't getting, you know, things that come off trucks and stay on trucks and kind of are pumped with all these chemicals. And we just really wanted to make sure that we were serving our communities what they deserve um, and, and so honeysuckle provisions gives us the opportunity to, to actualize that dream and I cannot wait until <laughs> it's
1: until that building is there you're both focusing on such a specific group a specific group and a specific interest and I'm wondering what have been in your process of building these ideas both the advantages and disadvantages of that like what are Let's start with let's start with the disadvantages, so we can go on the positive note. Have what what have been some obstacles to really focusing in on a group that you see needs help?
3: So yeah, we'll um, so that. for us, it's 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 been a challenge trying to trying to convince, and I even hate to say the word convince, but trying to convince folks of. Black humanity has been an ongoing battle. Um, and I say that to say that oftentimes Black food is devalued. Um, you know, grapes are Southern, ex- exclusively Southern food items or ingredients or recipes and dishes. Caribbean ingredients, recipes, dishes. Um, African, West African ingredients, recipes, dishes are often um, valued less than um, versus their uh, Kind of Eurocentric um, or even American white American counterpart um, recipes and dishes, and so for us, it's always it's always been the fight to convince folks that Black people or people in, in minority communities deserve good food, net fresh food. Fancy food, any type of food they really want, um, it, it's, that's been the, the hardest part is that we're in these meetings and and folks just sometimes don't see the value and why we, we want to um, subsidize some of these like fresher ingredients or, or like s- international uh, seasonings or spices that come from Africa. Why We need to subsidize the cost um, so our community can afford it. Um, but whereas, you know, if, if you want to go and get a fancy dinner and folks will pay $300 to go to like one of the best establishments in, in New York city or wherever, whereas we're having to consistently remind folks that like, we deserve good things too. We deserve yummy things too. And so, um, constantly feeling like you have to like have your guard up and that you're not only defending your concept, you're defending a whole, a whole community, a whole culture, a whole race is really daunting. Mm. And that has definitely been challenging um, in our endeavors because it's just not seen um, as valuable and and it should be.
1: Right. And it's something that both of you do. I mean, like when you're arguing for things, you're arguing for yourself. (laughs) You know, you're arguing Mm. for a black chef interested in promoting black foodways and Tia's arguing for a female Mm. DJ. Uh, And it's just, I don't think people realize that sometimes when they're like, Actively saying they want to support something, but then saying no, it's, it's you're like you're, they're looking directly at you and saying, I
3: actually don't right. believe.
1: And that's maybe not all the time what they're saying, sure. but. It, I mean yeah it or is. you know
3: oftentimes it's kind of like well folks want to support you but they want to support you on their terms which is not why we're here we're here because we have a vision I want to do something I have a, yeah. an end goal I have a dream I have a cause that I'm trying to um, I'm trying to accomplish I'm trying to help people um, and so that you can't someone else can't determine the value of that they cannot determine how much um, value they see in, in our our vision or our goal um, and so oftentimes like you know Things can't happen on anyone else's time. They have to happen on your time. They have to happen on your terms. Um, but mm. when people are giving you money or investing, they kind of wanna <laughs> they wanna set set those demands yeah. and kind of determine um, determine those parameters, which is just sucks.
2: Yeah. Everything um, the Sybil is saying resonates a lot. Um, I mean, one of our biggest challenges has really been to kind of open the doors to the music industry and convince gatekeepers, bookers, um, anyone who's working within the music industry that female and gender minority DJs are obviously just as talented as their male colleagues. Um, And that sometimes seems like you're, you know, you're you're working for something that's so obvious, but that it still needs to be explained. Um, and then also with, you know, with pay, like equal pay uh, is something that we advocate a lot for that, of course, the female and gender minority DJs should receive exactly the same pay as their male colleagues. Um, and our other challenges have, have really had to do with with funding, I would say, you know, like Although diversity, especially in the music industry is such a hot topic and lots of brands and foundations and companies want to jump on board, you know, what strikes me is still how little money is being invested into organizations um, like ours or communities um, and how much work we have to do to convince others that like, yo, like this is important (laughs) and we're shaping what the future looks like and it should be a priority. You know, if, if you can pay I don't know millions of dollars for a campaign for like a soda, um, surely you should be able to also invest in communities and and nonprofit initiatives that are actually changing people's lives. Definitely, and it's it's I think the
1: funding aspect. This is something that I've been talking about a lot in in getting in getting my organization off the ground. Mm. Is that it's so hard. I, I, like, I know for sure if we were to talk to a lot of people and say, listen, if you give us X amount of money, we'll be able to get 500 artists and give them, like, a two-day camp and you can say you've changed the lives of 500 artists. Yeah. But in then it's like, okay, that's something we did for one day. But what we need, we're, like, playing the long game. We want quality over quantity. We don't want... It's not just... We're not... Our organization isn't for someone else to be able to... Only talk at a dinner party and say, like, look at all these people I helped. We want them to be able to really see the value in investing in some form of change. And so the return isn't going to be as immediate. It's not as like packageable for them to be able to say, uh, look at all these lives I've changed. I'm like, I'm such a good person. But we really want them to, to, to really like see the value in the issues in the system that we're all operating in. Yeah. That, that it's, I mean, it's functioning of course, but it's not necessarily, it's not setting us up to better the people involved in it. It's not setting, we're not set up to better black chefs, we're not set up to better um, black knowledge about, about food, we're not set up to better f- women in, in like, you know, diversifying the, the music industry globally. And there's in, like really intense investments that need to happen, not just like a daytime fun
3: thing that's really easy to sell. Um, is this
1: making sense what I'm explaining? Back? Yeah,
3: totally. Um, and and you see it too, I mean it often it trickles into other aspects. Um, I was on a panel and we were talking about um, cookbooks. and recently we've seen like an uptick in um, publishers reaching out to get more um, black writers or writers of the African diaspora to to like share their stories into cookbooks and to write these stories. Um, but there it's it's almost as if it's on someone else's timeline and they don't have the grace of three years to finish these cookbooks. These editors and publishers want the cookbooks in 18 months and that's a huge feat. Um, But it's, it's all in an effort to capitalize on this moment where where the perception is that we care a lot about these topics and let's let's the quick fix is to throw all, all these black chefs into cookbooks and to throw them into mainstream media and to throw them into these positions for the moment, but that doesn't fix the systemic problem that's been happening for decades. Mm. It's almost a, it's the Band-Aid approach. Mm. It's like, hey, here you go. We, we've got diversity. We've got blackness. We've got all the things. We're hitting all the quotas. But in the back end of it, the system is still broken. And in mm. the future, we're just going to have the same issue all over again. And so the fight continues.
1: Let's pivot then to what are some of the advantages that have that you both have experienced in terms of being able to like zero in and knowing this is what I'm operating in. If you don't understand or if you're not interested, then like step to the side. Has there been, are there any that come to mind there?
3: Um, well, for me personally, I think it's just, it's been a personal boost. Um, starting your own business is hard. It's hard as hell. And yeah. I don't I don't have a background in business I didn't have a background in, in all these things and so confidence especially being like black women in in the, in the food industry confidence is like you either have it in spades or you're struggling to make yourself known and make yourself seen and so kind of doing this work has reaffirmed for me the importance of of me um, the importance of people like me um, and various stories within the black community that need kind of, um a boost and that need that need to be told and so uh, you also you learn so much about yourself in this progress of trying to, of standing up for yourself and standing up for your vision um, and so the, personally that has been the advantage for me is like I've gained this confidence and like I could can, I can tell some powerful people no <laughs> because they don't vibe with what we're trying to do and that's okay and I don't have to like sell myself because tomorrow a better opportunity might come up and that has happened Um, And so there's advantages in that there's also advantages of of kind of being able to understand your core audience and your community better in doing this work, Um, because oftentimes you have to remind yourself that you are not serving yourself, you're serving a a larger community that is very nuanced, that is not monolithic, that has lots of layers, and lots of needs. Um, And so kind of being able to stand up for that, um, just gives you a better understanding of, of really the community you're trying to serve.
2: Yeah, so I, I also um, also resonates with what we do and I think for Future Female Sounds, the advantage is that we have this really beautiful and tight-knit community that's global. Um, we started with 12 DJs in Denmark and now we're a community of over 5,000 um, female and gender minority DJs um, across the world. So that's been a huge you know advantage and um, just beautiful to see how how something that started such small scale um, has become global and i think also for me we we just came back from cairo egypt um, last week and every single time we do a workshop or a network meeting i'm just i'm always so inspired to see how much it means for both emerging and established DJs actually meet and share and discuss the common challenges that we face. Uh, I think there's a lot of power in that and in facilitating that kind of exchange and conversation. And yeah, also for me personally, I would say that it's, it's very empowering to be able to say no (laughs) um, to certain things and to, to really stay true to your, to your mission and your work. Yeah. Both of you
1: are mamas to little ones. Um, Sybil, you have a very little one. Super fresh. <laughs> um, and little, little Jupiter, who uh, I have yet, yet to meet. And Tia has Leia, um, one of the most adorable beings to ever cross this planet.
0: I do
1: agree. <laughs> <laughs> and I am wondering for you guys if there's any way also with um just if nurturing and growing a life like has that influenced the way you're approaching nurturing and growing these projects at all or is this just a really you know earth mama reach where i'm trying to make you guys sound like the like the californian hippie i
2: am Um, yeah, I, uh, I mean, for, uh, for myself, my, my daughter's now three and a half. Um, and my organization is almost four years old. So, uh, it's definitely been a, a growing process because I've had to build an organization while I was growing a human being. Um, and that was hard, um, but also really um, motivating. So I think what I've what I've had to learn being a mom and an entrepreneur and you know someone who who wants to change the world, which is very ambitious, um, is that I've I've learned to have to be much more efficient. <laughs> First of all, I've had to work faster, but not just faster. I've had to work more concentrated. Um, because there's only so little time that you get in between, especially when, you know, when you have a small baby. Um, and I think also like the work that I do now becomes even more important because I want my daughter to grow up in a better world. So it just it makes me more motivated to to push for this change. Yeah.
3: Yeah, um, I. <laughs> it's so funny um, listening to you talk about um, having to kind of grow a business and raise a human at the same time, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I, I that resonates so deeply for me. Um, Jupiter mm-hmm. is four months old, and we we started on honeysuckle provisions and working towards it um, around two thousand. 20 um towards like the kind of middle of the pandemic but obviously when things started opening up that's when the business picked up pace and and we were really moving um with with um getting press and you know being able to assemble our team and really working towards um the vision that we are really 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 close to now and i was pregnant at that time and um, my mm-hmm. husband did a residency up in um, Terrytown, New York, at Blue Hill, and I just remember being six months pregnant, running around with him at this residency, <laughs> and thinking to myself, "I'm either crazy or a superhuman," <laughs> and and, yeah. and it was a little bit of both. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and so being on the other side of it now, and you know, this is a topic I've been really dying to talk about because, like, I feel like working moms i i mean my mom was a working mom so i understood i saw but i didn't really understand um the things that the pressures that we go through the erasure we go through even we're we're within working within our own spaces on things that we've kind of birthed um human and or business wise um and and that is that's something that has just been really kind of striking for me and so um I'm always down to talk about the ills the society puts on working moms and the pressures that that moms have to experience. But the 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 beautiful side of that, the upside of that, is that, yeah, it does empower you to kind of really go in on your business because you are creating something for someone to carry on when you're gone, if they choose to. You're you're where the buzzwords of generational wealth and legacy. I know folks like to talk about it to death, but it, it really is there's there's truth to it and. We're building honeysuckle provisions for for Jupiter and for my stepson Bashir to take on when when they want to if they want to in the future. but having the option is something that we were I was never afforded as, as a first generation child of immigrants. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the option um, to fall into ownership um, but being in a position to provide that for our children is so important and it's so special in it and mm-hmm. and if not for us, then at least having something that someone else's child can, can grow into and can have a positive work experience and um, means so much more. Um, because every time we look at our children, we're looking at the future. And so we're building Honeysuckle for us and for our current communities, but we're building it for 20 years out um, in hopes to change the way that, that people in our communities have a relationship to food. And we can start that from now. And so we always say it, we're, we're not really building Honeysuckle for us. We're building it for our children and our grandchildren, because by then, hopefully we've been around enough long enough to enact change that really can 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 affect the whole entire e- food ecosystem. It's just so exciting.
1: <laughs> I, it's, you know, you, it's like you you kind of suddenly you want time to like speed up, you know, you just want <laughs> to see all these. All these things happen and i think there's also one thing that i think i've enjoyed watching with you tia um become a mother while doing all of this work mm. uh is that there was there's there becomes more of a focus on on content i think when you're starting something and also the way we look at ourselves you're we're always like kind of worried about how is this going to be perceived what does this look like? Like, what are the aesthetics mm. of something, which is really important. But as 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 Leo was getting older, you, the way you were speaking was changing. It was more about like sh- she just needs me. You know, like she doesn't need me when I'm cute. She doesn't need me to be funny. She doesn't need me like she she just needs me to be there. And I saw the structures and how you were also setting up future female sounds shifting with that as well that Mm. is still like it still looks good we still have an aesthetic we understand you know you understand that you're part of the instagram generation and that people the way you present yourself does resonate with interest but the 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 focus on just like well what are we doing yeah let's just make sure what we're doing is solid yeah and we can kind of like decorate it later but we just we need to be there we need to be present we need to fill this gap and i think that that is something that a lot of other organizations or businesses don't have. And I don't know if that's me, like, you know, conflating the two and saying that you, you became a mother and so then this happened or if that just would have happened naturally with the progression of the, of the organization itself. But
2: yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I think it's always kind of interesting, you know, hearing it from an outside perspective because Um, To be honest, like I haven't even had a moment in the past four years where I've been able to kind of look at the work we're actually doing from the outside because I've just been running so fast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, but yeah, I I definitely, I agree. I think that becoming a mother or a parent for that matter um, and and running a business um, is is hard, but at the same time, it's very, very rewarding um, on both ends. And I do, I do think that it makes the work that we do and the mission that we're on much more um, important. And there's just this fuel um, that you get from from also being a parent that spills into your work life. Yeah. What are some of the choices or
1: sacrifices, are there moments where you're like, if I had turned this into just a money making machine, this would be way easier
3: than trying to do this like the right way? Oh, my gosh. Literally last night, um, my, my, my husband and I went out to dinner. Um, we went to a friend's restaurant. They own a wonderful, fabulous um, establishment in Philadelphia called Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we're just sitting at the bar enjoying a wonderful, like, six-course menu, cocktails, everything was superb. And we just, like, look at each other and we're like, what, what are we doing? Like, we could be doing this. We could be owning a restaurant and charging people $300 a head for a 15-course meal of, of like, delicious food from the diaspora because, like, it's worth it. And we could, like... We could have the best restaurant in the world and we could do this. Like, this is what we could be doing. But then we couldn't do, we couldn't do provisions. You know, we couldn't be in the community. Um, And Mm. it would be great to have that restaurant, but it wouldn't be as fulfilling as the work that we're doing now. And we probably wouldn't be able to reach as many people as we want to reach with with what we're building now. Um, So the thought does cross our minds at (laughs) times, especially when, you know, when payroll is tight for our team and we're like, oh, community work, why? But it is, (laughs) it is, it is so fulfilling, it's far more fulfilling, um, being able to um, impact others and to help change communities, it's really, it's priceless.
1: I suppose the hope is in the future, that you would be able to yeah. charge that, but using every like all, every, that it, that Jupiter, if yes. they become a chef, <laughs> um, but in the future they can you know take they can, all their food ways can be from yeah. black farms where then they're also charging let's account yeah. for inflation or maybe we have UBI right. at that point. <laughs> fingers crossed. So then they're charging five mm-hmm, fifty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And and the the dream's yeah. still there, but they just didn't have to compromise on yeah. all the other stuff. Living their um, best chef
3: life. Yeah. Living that yeah. best <laughs> chef life.
1: What about yeah. what about for you, Tia? What are some choices or sacrifices where you're like?
2: If only. You know, listen. When I tell people what I make every month after working, you know, almost four years more or less full time, and those people are like, "What?" <laughs> um you know, so obviously still not making money, but (laughs) I think any, for any of us who work in, you know, community building or in the creative industries, like we, we also know that this is the trade-off, like you don't, you don't go into this industry trying to make money. Um, and I think, you know, in some way, maybe it's like the fate for all of us who are, you know, radically trying to change the world. Like maybe it's even the condition, um, for doing so is that we're not driven, um, By you know, money. Um, But then I also, I also think that like, I, you know, I kind of, I don't like this idea of people who work in nonprofits shouldn't make money or like, activism should always be free. Like, I think that in itself is like a consequence of capitalism. And, you know, it sounds like, it sounds a bit basic, but like, you know, like why should some dude who works in a tech company or... The manager, uh, CEO, who like profits of you know exploiting labor, like why should they make a million while doing absolutely nothing for this world, while people who are really passionate and knowledgeable and are changing things um, are you know trying to get by. So it's also about kind of you know leaving that idea behind that because you are working in the nonprofit sector or in you know in community building that you automatically shouldn't get paid. Like, you should. Um, mm. But it's just a, it's just a, it's a bit more complicated um, in, in how you acquire uh, money to run your organization or your business. Our strategy has always been that when we collaborate with companies or foundations or brands, the DJs have to be paid first. So it's like, my team, my staff have to be paid. It's a non-negotiable um, because we're also working, you know, trying to advocate for more equal industry, right? So it's like, how can I do that if we don't lead the way um, right. by saying what's acceptable and what isn't? So when we do work with, you know, outside um, brands and companies and foundations, I it's my job, you know, as a CEO to make sure that Everyone that's within our community that's part of that project also gets paid.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so many organizations or community like projects they exist because they wouldn't exist otherwise. Like because Mm -hmm. the way we've structured the world has been structured as it is, um, just doesn't make room for those to flourish. Even though everyone is like, of course this is needed, of course this is necessary. (laughs) And so I think it's funny when when I'm having these meetings with people and potential funders or potential partners. Um, when my, myself and my colleague Ben are there, and then there's suggestions as to like, well, why don't you guys do this?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whenever they say it, I'm always like, but that just makes us exactly <laughs> like you. Like, <laughs> that's just like, that's just, yeah, that would, of course that would work because it's been working, but that's the whole point is that that's the only way for it to work. Yeah. And what we're talking about here is trying to make it so that there's another way that we you know, there can be an other, another option. And I completely agree with you, Tia. I think we all, there, there was like a resounding like sort of like church amen when you're like, just because you work <laughs> right. in the industry and in, in community doesn't mean you shouldn't get paid. Uh, mm. And the, the sheer amount of work that it takes as well that like, you know, you don't really clock out. You're, you're always yep. working on it. You're always thinking about it. Mm. Um, but it, it it creates, there's like this t- tension or this friction because I don't know how you guys feel, but I know that like once my organization is up and running. I would love it if there were like 12 copycats. I'd be like, That's great, you know, I would because I can't yeah. serve that many people. And so if there's 12 people that want to be exactly like us and do the same thing, like I don't see that as competition as long as I can also get paid. But if if there are copycats, that means there's, you know, there's value in the work there. There is there's people that need to be served. There are, for my purposes, young musicians who are looking for this way in and an industry that wants to support it. But I think that a lot of times that confuses people when I'm just like, oh, yeah, if someone else wanted to start the same thing in like three years, I'd be like,
2: thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I totally agree, you know, and like um, since we started uh, a little over four years ago, there's been a lot of other collectives and organizations um, doing similar work. And people are always like, oh, but this is just like this is like Future sound." I'm like, <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's great. Um, because we're all working for the same mission, right? So we all want to create, you know, better, uh, conditions for female and gender minority DJs. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. You know, the, it's, it's about, you know, um, collaborativeness and, and not about competition. And if we're all working towards the same or the similar goal, then the more the merrier.
3: Yeah, we, you know, it's so funny because, um, for for us, it's like please please let there be more honeysuckles <laughs> in different cities and states. So the onus mm-hmm. is not all on us, you know. Um, we we yeah. would love we would love yeah. to be able to connect and and see another similar project popping up in a place like Cleveland or um, in like Mississippi or something. Because that just means that the, the black farmers that we support get more business themselves as well, um, and so. Mm-hmm that that's the that's the way that that's our philosophy with it is that like we want to be able to expand this distribution network of, of black and brown farmers and people that are growing their own and making their own products um they could be there's a billion types of breads in the supermarket aisle and, and that doesn't hinder one other bread from being supported versus another. And so that's that's the way it should be able to exist with, with food businesses that are minority owned. It should We shouldn't have to worry about stepping on each other's toes. We should all be working together. Um, but unfortunately, because of the way that the system's set up, um, it's the mentality of a lot of folks that there can only be one. And that's not the case.
1: Well, do you think, Sybil, that you guys are gonna move the needle on that one? Change the world? This is how we're gonna end. I'm gonna ask you both if you're gonna change the world. Um,
3: I, I think, I think yes. I think we will change at the very least our world and the world of, of our mm-hmm. our family members, our friends, our peers, our our even competitors. Um, we hope we hope that mm-hmm. that someone is so in love with Honeysuckle that they want to replicate it or that they're so envious of Honeysuckle that they want to compete against it because that just means that everyone is shifting their thinking in terms of food, black food and communities of color and their access to food. Um, so ultimately, mm-hmm. yeah, hell yeah. There we go.
1: <laughs> it's always you need to have some sort of a four letter word in there as well.
2: Um, what about you, Tia? Are you going to change the world? Yes, uh, I think already am, um, but not by myself. We're changing it together um, in the community that we're that we're building and facilitating. Um, I was thinking a lot about this question, and I think when I started thinking about the concept of like changing the world, <laughs> um, which is so. Um, which is so vast and complex, I kind of came back to this quote that that I always come back to when I'm kind of trying to remind myself of why I started this organization. And it's a quote by an author called M.K. Asante. And he says that the artivist knows that to make an observation is to have an obligation. And the quote sticks with me because I think that if you have the privilege or the possibility of being able to create change, changing the world in whatever field you work, then it's your duty to do so. Um, and I think changing the world starts in our minds, you know? Um, and for me, it's, I, I wanted to create social change through music, through DJing and really leave an impact on the industry by creating alternatives that are inclusive and, and accessible, but also that opens the door for girls and gender minorities to even pursue DJing as a profession. Um, and so once we see that we can change the world in our own little fields, then it becomes much more attainable. You know, it's not not changing the entire world but changing maybe just one person's life um and that's great if you can do so so yeah
1: to make an observation is to have an obligation Was mm. that it yeah that's dope yeah yeah I, I mean i think i think that's a fine <laughs> note to end on frankly. <laughs> <thankfully. laughs> and yeah, I think uh, I, th- I would just really want to thank you. Thank you both for spending this time and for letting me
2: call some girlfriends,
1: <laughs> as as it were. <laughs> yes, thank thank you. you so much.
0: That was so great. Please tell us where listeners can find all of these organizations. Uh, you can definitely find
1: Future Female Sounds, which, full disclosure, I am on the board of. You can follow them on Instagram at Future Female Sounds, and then also Sounds.org is their website. Um, and if you're looking to book a DJ, you can do that there as well. Oh, I love that. Honeysuckle um, is the website is honeysucklephl.com. And you can also find them on honeysuckle underscore projects on Instagram. Um, and then for me, our website is risingartist.org.
0: Amazing. We're going to link to all of these in the show notes as well, along with your website. Um, thank you so much.
1: And for Rising Artist Foundation, our website is risingartistfoundation.com.
0: Amazing. I'll see you on the internet.
1: See you on the internet.
0: You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. Call us back. Leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books, but we are really partial to independent bookstores. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kenesha Need. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is executive produced by Gina Delvac.